Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Martin Schreiber is a trauma and critical care surgeon at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. He has had a major impact on our understanding of resuscitation and trauma, among many other topics. We talked to Dr. Schreiber about his experience with the military, his advocacy around trauma research, and trauma resuscitation. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training pathway? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure uh, to work with uh, my colleagues to the north. Uh, Actually, uh, interesting story. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, within about 200 yards of Harvey Cushing's grave. Uh, Harvey Cushing, George Kreil, both buried in the same cemetery. I didn't know that until 2005 when I went to Iraq and I read Harvey Cushing's uh, biography, autobiography, actually. And uh, so... Uh, at the end of the book, it says he's buried in this cemetery that I grew up across the street from. So I got back uh, from Iraq. I went to that cemetery. I found Harvey Cushing, George Kreil. Harvey Cushing's buried about 20 feet from Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, uh, Elliot Ness is in there. Uh, it, it's a it's a pretty in, it's a pretty impressive place. But uh, that's sort of how life started across the street from some great surgeons. Uh, from there, I went to college at the University of Chicago and then back to Cleveland at Case Western Reserve for medical school. I did my, my internship at Madigan in Tacoma, Madigan Army Medical Center, and uh, finished residency at the University of Washington and then uh, spent four years at William Beaumont Army Medical Center uh, on active duty time. A couple of years at Ben Taub as the chief of trauma there, and then uh, I've been here since. The last 19 years, I've been in Portland. So uh, I've had the opportunity to live in every time zone and uh, really experience the United States. Wow, that's an amazing story about that cemetery. Like that's like a who's who of of just legends in surgery and and just legendary people in general. Um, so that's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, if you come to Cleveland, uh, you know all my buddies come to Cleveland. That's uh, about the first place we go. Take a little tour of the greats. President Garfield is in there as well. Sir, you you talk um, you've talked at length uh, previously on on your military experience, but we we did want to talk to you a little bit about it uh, on the podcast today because obviously it's something that's really shaped you and uh, and and uh, you know it's it was a powerful experience for you and you talk about many powerful experiences that you've had uh, while you were part of the military. Can you describe a little bit about how, sort of how you got involved with the military and 
what uh, what experience, what impact it's actually had on your career and 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 your life going forward? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a documentary on life. Uh, it's interesting. Your intentions don't always end up the way that you you thought they would. So what happened to me was, uh, as I was growing up, I saved up every penny I could to go to college and had a bunch of jobs and. This is, you know, early, you know, early 80s. We're talking about 1980. Uh, you know, I had a couple of jobs. I saved up about $20,000. I went to University of Chicago and they said, well, we're not going to give you any aid. So that was gone pretty quickly. And then I went into debt. And by the time I got done with college, I was about $20,000 in debt, which at that time, believe it or not, seemed almost catastrophic. So uh, my main, I'd always sort of been enamored by the military, but sort of the main initiative that caused me to, to, to join was this, this debt. And, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, the money part of it is, is really means nothing. It, it really didn't play much of a role at all, but I kind of fell into a life, a life opportunity because, uh, it's developed into an incredible career that has shaped, uh, the way I practice medicine and my research, uh, you know, I, I've, I've really learned the most about taking care of trauma patients while I've been deployed. Uh, I've been deployed three times, 2005 in Iraq, 2010 in uh, Bagram, uh, Afghanistan, and then 2014 again in Afghanistan. In 2010, I was the Joint Theater Trauma System Director, and I had a piece of paper in my pocket that said uh, I could go anywhere I wanted, basically. I just take it to the airport or the airfield and the pilots would take me wherever I wanted to go. And I traveled all throughout Afghanistan. I, I served kind of as a, a, a surveyor. I'd look at resources and move people and resources around throughout theater uh, and make decisions, help create the clinical practice guidelines. And we held a, a weekly uh, video teleconference reviewing all the critical patients. I met uh, people that I ended up being lifelong friends with. In fact, uh, John Holcomb, uh, was at William Beaumont. I mentioned I was there for four years and we actually ended up having a double wedding uh, and have been close friends. So some of my closest friends were from the military. It really shaped who I am as a surgeon and researcher uh, and really kind of enhanced my life. Uh, so I, you know, it's funny how a $20,000 debt could end in, in such, a, uh, such an opportunity that really is life-changing. I wanted to take a pause and ask you specifically about something I've seen you talk about uh, recently a, a fair bit, and that's really your your voice for both national and international reform on funding trauma and injury-related research. I'm curious just to start off, why is the advocacy so important to you? What are the metrics that you really use to frame that discussion? And, and what have our struggles been in terms of getting this message out to date? Because I think Struggle is probably the right word, at least it certainly is in, in Canada and the U.S. Yeah, you know, uh, I, you know, if you think about it in terms of the pandemic, I, I think trauma is the great unrecognized pandemic. Uh, and, then, and drawing some parallels, I think, you know, first of all, a few months ago, we, we reached 500,000 deaths from COVID in the United States, and the flags were flown at half-mast. So if you think about that number, 500,000, it's, it, it's about the number of uh, Americans that die from trauma every single year. About the number that die from trauma every single year. If you look at the number across the world, about twice as many people in the world 
die every year from trauma compared to how many die from co- have died at the height of the COVID pandemic. So who, who's aware of this? And, and, and what's anybody doing about it? The answer is nobody. Nobody's aware of it and nobody's doing anything about it. Uh, so we as trauma surgeons, uh, the ones that are taking care of these patients, I feel are obligated to educate the public and our legislators about the magnitude of the problem to awaken them to this and to change and really uh, make a significant change in in what's happening. If you look at uh, NIH funding and DOD funding for trauma, something about like around 3% of all NIH dollars go to trauma. So this is the leading cause of death for young people between the ages of one and 44, the leading cause of working years lost in the country and only 3% of the NIH dollars go to trauma research. There is no home for trauma research at the NIH. The funding for trauma at the NIH is spread across all of uh, the institutes with NINDS, National Institute of Neurologic Diseases, being the number one, uh, they're funding TBI. And it's about 10% of uh, their overall budget. But if you look at the magnitude of disease. So if you measure magnitude of disease, numbers of deaths, the impact on society, and then you look at the numbers of dollars that are being utilized to study that disease, trauma is the absolute worst of all disease processes. The worst in terms of uh, matching burden of disease to dollar spent. And even if you look at the DOD, only about 20% of DOD dollars goes toward trauma research. And you know this is kind of shocking, right? Because the purpose of, one of the major purposes of the DOD, Department of Defense, is to support the injured warfighter, but yet only 20% of the dollars go to that. And a lot of that in our country is congressionally directed. Uh, DOD dollars, a large portion of the DOD dollars are congressionally directed and go to a number of diseases Uh, Some of them, you may not even know what it is, like fragile X syndrome, uh, arthritis, uh, all types of different diseases. And a lot of that funding is determined by lobbying efforts uh, and where the money goes and getting people elected. So I've served in a couple of different uh, areas that makes this important important to me. I was on uh, the Board of Governors of the American College of Surgeons. And I was the head of the advocacy committee. So I was deeply involved in, in these legislative activities with trauma being a focus of that. I'm also the chair of the Trauma Center Association of America. And one of our pillars is advocacy. So teaching people, learning how to advocate at the federal and state level and educating the population, I think is the critical element to, to making a paradigm shift and how trauma is viewed and how it's funded from a research standpoint. You know, every time you talk about this and, and, and you frame it in, in that exact way, I, I sort of get goosebumps because it, 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 on one hand, it excites me about potential, but on the other side of things, it really disappoints me in terms of historical performance, which you, you've outlined, you know, and um, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities between Canada and the U.S. with regard to all the elements that you're talking about. When, when you guys teach 
physicians or recommend uh, strategies to physicians in terms of trying to be more of an advocate for all the issues that you're talking about that surround injury on this continent. What are some of the mechanics of, of those recommendations, the, the nuts and bolts? What, what can we do both in the U.S. as well as Canada? So I think number one, uh, you know, we work in level one trauma centers, high level trauma centers. I think part of our mission as a level one trauma center is outreach and education. So I think working locally and regionally uh, to educate the population, you know, prevention is a big issue as well, right? So, so all level one trauma centers need to be involved in prevention efforts. Uh, part of prevention is education. You know what? What? Why should you? Why should you wear helmets and seatbelts and uh, change the shoes and glasses of the elderly? Uh, because they're at risk for for trauma. So it's an educational process. So at the local and regional level, I think that a lot of that is the responsibility of the level one trauma centers working with their local governments in educating the population, the fire department, the police department, educating. Uh, you know, doing things like stop the bleed. Uh, which, uh, you know, getting that out to every individual. So now the average citizen becomes a first responder. So I think that's, it has to start at the grassroots level. And it has to start, we need to turn uh, Stop the Bleed into the same success that uh, ACLS has had and the American Heart Association. You know, everybody pretty much is trained how to do CPR. Everybody should be trained to do stop the bleed. And now we start to you know, elevate the level of trauma uh, to some of the other major disease processes that are much better funded. I think um, the advocacy has to also be done at the federal and uh, local level. And this means getting to know your legislators. And you know, in the current era with, with COVID, it's now very easy to meet with your legislator. You know, you can you can do a WebEx or a or a Zoom, just like we're doing today. Get to know your legislator. Get to you know educate them. Offer your so we at the level one trauma centers we have you know we have endless data. We can tell them everything they need to know about gun violence and how it's increasing in the United States and what a, what a problem it is. So that needs to be done not only at the federal level, but also at the state and regional level. So we, we, for instance, we're working with uh, our local area uh, uh, on a program called Healing Hurt People. And what, what Healing Hurt People does is when there is a, a gun violence event in a young person, uh, Healing Hurt People comes to the hospital within four hours, offers resources, offers support, and then they go back out into the community and intervene and try to prevent retaliation. If this is like a gang event, they will actively stop retaliation. And these are typically people that had been in gangs themselves, who have been rehabilitated, who know the, who know, uh, the people involved and will actually intervene and stop violence. That type of program needs to be supported and needs to be funded. And that happens at the regional local level. So. I think this is a multifaceted, multi-pronged uh, uh, effort. Starts with education in the region, propagation of stop the bleed, uh, working with your local government, and then the state and federal governments, and, and the equivalents. Uh, I think in Canada as well. I think all of that may have, you know, the, there's provinces instead of states. 
but I think all of it's exactly the same and analogous, but, but that's sort of uh, how I think we should promote it. And I think, you know, one of my major efforts is that is uh, we are working in the TCAA with the other trauma organizations to find a home at the NIH, uh, an institute of trauma, so that we can really accelerate the research. So there's a lot of work to do. And, and I, you know, everyone needs to get involved with this because it's so critical for society. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you look after injury, and I, I would extend you know, a lot of your comments and your direction, um, certainly in Canada, you know, given the geography and the, the widespread distances beyond even trauma centers and trauma fellowship trained surgeons to general surgeons, like, you know, we're all looking after injury at some level, um, despite regional transfer agreements and provincial wide trauma systems. And so it, it really does impact all of us. And I, I particularly like your idea of using Stop the Bleed as a sort of a, an important clinical, but even more than that, you know, uh, an advertising vehicle to generate that that sort of momentum. I'm curious with all the work that you've done over so many different platforms in a lot of years, what are some of the early returns that, that you maybe have seen or stories that you could share with us? Well, I think, I think number one, um, I think Stop the Bleed has been a really successful program that has been disseminated throughout the region, has kind of made a paradigm shift in uh, causing uh, you know, just the regular civilian to now become a first responder. So I think that effort uh, really did well. I, there's probably been uh, some delay now with further success because of the COVID pandemic. But uh, I think the early uh, efforts and the dissemination of Stop the Bleed went a long way toward not only arming people with the knowledge of how to save lives, but also you know, the, the, the devastating, devastating natures of trauma itself. So I think that's a success. I think there's been some other successes in the research world. Uh, the National Trauma Institute in the United States uh, is funded and uh, is now, you know, funding projects and that's propagating. Uh, there have been some very, uh, very well-funded networks. One is LIGHTS, Linked Investigations in Trauma. Uh, and emergency services. This is a, a DOD contract for up to $90 million, and it's a multi-center effort. A panel of experts uh, picks combat uh, casually relevant research, and these uh, institutions actually execute the research. So that's a, that's a major effort by the Department of Defense to, to, uh, to fund significant uh, combat casualty research. Similarly, on uh, the NIH side, there's SIREN. So obviously people were trying to be funny and they came up with lights and SIREN. SIREN is, uh, is an NIH network. Uh, and the way that one works is you become part of the network and people submit uh, R01 grants. And when those grants are funded, the network ex uh, executes the research. So both the federal government through the NIH and the DOD uh, have set up these networks that can do uh, a lot of critical research uh, and really start to change uh, how we understand trauma and improve the care of trauma patients. So slowly but surely, uh, I think that efforts are increasing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there were there was a lot more funding in the United States for trauma related grants and activities 
But uh, as the Trump uh, regime came through and uh, efforts were made at dismantling Obamacare, a lot of that funding went away. So uh, now there are new efforts to, to revive that and to increase the funding for, for trauma. I think one area that we can really state is a success in the United States is the now funding of uh, gun-related uh, research. So essentially, the CDC and NIH uh, almost were mandated not to do any research related to firearm-related uh, illness. But now in the last few years, that has been revived, and we're now seeing research related to firearms, looking at epidemiology and really looking at it as a disease process you know, not not in the manner of uh, gun control, which is you know a dirty word to a lot of people, but more in the manner of saying, okay, this is a social disease process, and we need to control the effects of that, treat the disease, and prevent injury, minimize injuries, find new ways to make guns safe. And I think there's been a lot of uh, success in that area. So there are early signs uh, uh, of uh, increasing knowledge, disseminating Stop the Bleed, increasing research dollars, NIH and DOD, uh, and actually addressing firearm-related injury now. But I think we're, we're just taking baby steps. Uh, we've got a really long way to go. But there is some bright areas here that look promising. Well, if you're taking baby steps, we haven't even begun to move at all up here in, in Canada. So you, you may need to come... Uh, a couple hours north and uh, and help us out to really get things going here. Uh, amazing stuff that you've been talking about, Dr. Schreiber. We we did want to take this opportunity to talk to you a little bit about some of the research that you've done. Uh, obviously, you've done work on so many different things, but one thing in particular that stands out is the amazing work that you've done uh, on resuscitation. And we wanted to highlight one of the studies that you recently published in JAMA on out-of-hospital transexamic acid and impact on neurological outcomes. And we'll link to the, the study in the show notes. Can you talk to us a little bit about the motivation for, for doing this study? Yeah, so uh, so that was the last major study for a previous consortium, the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. Uh, Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, very, very interesting consortium. It was funded by the NIH, the DOD, the American Heart Association, and the equivalent organizations in Canada and consisted of multiple centers throughout North America, both the United States and Canada. Uh, Vancouver was a big player in that, as was Toronto, uh, and Ottawa, actually, as well. Uh, and uh, basically, this consortium was put together to study trauma and cardiac-related emergencies. The very last study that we did was uh, funded through the ROC and the Department of Defense. And we looked at giving tranexamic acid to patients with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury uh, in the field. And uh, from a, th this, the lens of this study was really largely from a DOD standpoint. And we were looking at the feasibility of delivering the drug and uh, trying to make it easier. So, you know, the standard dosing for TXA is a one gram bolus followed by a one gram infusion over eight hours. That really evolved out of the studies in elective surgery and, and isn't really relevant to trauma cases, particularly traumatic brain injury. So looking at this from a feasibility standpoint, 
if you're in theater and you've got a patient who's either in hemorrhagic shock or has TBI, it would be much easier to give that two gram dose as a single bolus as opposed to a, you know, a one gram bolus and a one gram infusion. So we compared the two gram prehospital bolus to the standard one gram, one gram do dosing to placebo. And you, know, you really have to look, read, read that article pretty hard to find it. But what we found was the two gram bolusing. Now th this bolusing was, this was started within 42 minutes of injury on, in, uh, as a median. And that resulted in a statistically significant improvement in survival. Uh, and all of the difference was really in the first 10 hours. So we found that to be incredibly exciting. Uh, the military through uh, tactical combat casualty care, the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care has already changed their guidelines to two grams TXA pre-hospital, both for brain injury and for uh, hemorrhagic shock and centers around the United States are, are making that change. Uh, well, we, we plan to publish, part of the problem when you do a study like this, a pre-hospital trial, it turns out that a significant portion of the patients, almost you know more than 40% of them, in fact, didn't actually have a brain injury on CT when they arrived. So when you focus on the patients with brain injury documented by CT, that's where you see the survival benefit, a strong survival benefit. And we're going to uh, publish another paper, hopefully in Lancet, that focuses just on the patients with brain injury that will show very clearly the survival benefit of giving TXA. But this was really done through a DOD lens uh, with thoughts about feasibility and the logistics of giving a single bolus of the two gram total dose uh, early after injury. And we found that our medics were more than 95% compliant with the protocol, including following inclusion exclusion criteria and initiating the drug in the field within 40, uh, 40 minutes of, of injury. So really exciting trial, uh, really exciting results. Uh, and uh, it, you know, it, really, it really turned out really well for us. So it was a, you know, we ended up enrolling about a thousand patients across North America and when we looked at those patients with documented uh, brain injury, we saw the strong difference. This is really a gargantuan effort on your part to put on a trial like this. So can you talk a little bit about what actually goes into creating a, a multi-center, multinational trial such as this, especially in a, in a setting where you're actually relying on our first responders to actually administer a, a drug like this, which they are, you know, may not be used to doing. So this, you know, as I mentioned, this was the last major study of, of the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium that it actually existed for about 10 years. Over those 10 years, we did numerous studies and the cities that were involved uh, really got really good at this. So Problem number one is you have to have a mechanism to put patients in a study where in an environment where you cannot get consent. You know, so, you know, patients in hemorrhagic shock or brain injury, you can't consent those patients and you're in the field. So uh, we developed, you know, the, the FDA, uh, and I don't know the regulations in Canada, but the FDA has exception from informed consent. And what you do is you educate your community uh, you create a forums through uh, social media, the, the internet, and actually meeting with people in the region. You, you uh, do consultation with them, educate them about the study. Uh, 
survey them to ensure that you have support of the community focusing on the, the people at risk to be in the study and giving people opportunity to opt out with bracelets. So having a consortium that exists for 10 years lets people get really good at this. And it allows people to train their pre-hospital services to also get really good at this. And so what you do is you develop the means to rapidly do the community consultation for the, the EFIC and to rapidly train your EMS providers. So what, you, what you're actually doing is you're creating a platform and the platform, you may change the intervention, but the mechanism to get to reach the exception from informed con consent and the mechanism to train the medics stays the same. So, uh, you know, just to give you an example, you know, we did this TXA study. Well, you know, now with a subset of the rock sites, we're doing a K-Centra trial. And it's exactly the same thing, except we're using K-Centra instead of TXA. And we've got the mechanism in place. We rapidly got through the EFIC process. It gets faster and faster the more you do it. And we rapidly got through uh, the training for the medics. And, uh, you know, you can change the name of the drug or the intervention, but we have set up mechanisms across North America to rapidly uh, execute these types of trials. And so it, it really took, you know, it took five, six, seven, eight years to get really good at this. But once you set up the platform, you can really efficiently study just about anything. Yeah, the, the devil's in the details. There's there's no doubt. It's it's tremendous from those of us in the rest of the world to have watched, you know, your your collective do this uh, over and over and over again and really contributed, you know, field changing uh, studies and, and findings. Well, one of the papers that that I like very, very much that you just published, I think it was last month in the Journal of Trauma, uh, was sort of a review or an overview on pre-hospital resuscitation. And you appropriately draw the links between some of the things that you've talked about already, but the strong uh, connection between what goes on in the military side of things and, and how that's extrapolated into the civilian side of things. And I was curious if you could put that into a bit of a historical context and maybe lead into where you see the future of resuscitation, you know, as a, as a 3000 foot entity going from here. So I think, uh, uh, Number one, almost everything that's written in that paper came from my experience in the military. Uh, this, you know, my civilian training, uh, I trained at Harborview in Seattle, and I, have a, I, I found the shirt just the other day. It has all these equations on it, SVO2, cardiac uh, oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, uh, the equation for a map. It's the, the whole front of the, of the shirt has all these equations on it, and it says Harborview where the answer is always fluid. And so my training was you essentially, we went by the, the mnemonic, you can't get well unless you swell. And, and maybe Chad, you've heard that as well. I doubt Amir has, but um, we flooded patients with, we put swans in everybody, we flood them with crystalloid and we tried to make them flow independent, meaning that we increased the oxygen delivery till oxygen consumption didn't increase anymore. And all we really achieved was increasing mortality and uh, creating open abdomens. So, you know, with the work in Houston, uh, the, the New England Journal paper published in 1994, that kind of started a paradigm shift 
Uh, other work in Houston looking at uh, supernormal uh, oxygen delivery with fluid also showed us these negative outcomes. And then the, and then the wars came in Iraq and Afghanistan. And essentially, we, we then now started to throw the crystalloid out. And first, we were resuscitating uh, with components. And then we realized that, well, now we're going to put the components, you know, the proper study led by John Holcomb. We're going to put the components back together in a one-to-one-to-one ratio to recreate whole blood. We finally said, okay, in the United States, why do that? Just, just use the whole blood. And that really came from the experience that we had in theater using fresh whole blood, which uh, I, I have to tell you, frankly, the, the liquid cold stored whole blood that we use in the light in the United States is really uh, nothing compared to fresh whole blood. Uh, you know, in theater at the height of the wars, you could have a fresh whole blood drive and have a warm bag of blood with 100% of all coagulation components in it within an hour of asking for it. And you can, I gave up to 21 units uh, in a single, to a single patient in a day where we had multiple casualties all getting whole blood. So you can mobilize huge amounts of whole blood. So I think the things we learned in theater and these wars, number one, the emphasis and the focus needs to be on stopping the bleeding. Uh, that was a paradigm shift from resuscitation as the first thing to do. Stopping the bleeding became, became the critical element. That started with tourniquets and hemostatic dressings and rapid surgery to stop bleeding. And then the resuscitation shifted entirely toward uh, fresh whole blood and liquid cold stored whole blood and completely away from anything that was clear. Uh, and uh, so that had a profound impact ultimately uh, back in the civilian world. Uh, in terms of the future, I, I think that the next thing that I'm really trying to do right now here at, at OHSU, and, I, and I'm getting some uh, positive feedback, is I want to start a walking blood bank. <clears throat> Obviously, to provide the, uh, the threshold blood, that's what you need. And I believe that within the next few years, walking blood banks will proliferate because we're going to see some incredible blood shortages. And platelets will be the most problematic. And it may become true that at some points, even in civilian medicine, the only way to get platelets is with fresh whole blood. So I think that's gonna happen. It's a, it's, it, it can be done safely. It requires a low risk population that is screened for infectious diseases every 90 days and a rapid colon system and then uh, uh, skilled people to get the blood efficiently, but it's doable. Uh, and I think that'll happen. I wonder if as we go forward, we're going to see a little bit of a shift away from uh, early use of blood products in the field more toward concentrates. Uh, things like uh, prothrombin complex concentrate, which will provide the coagulation activity and fibrinogen concentrate. Uh, these things can be stored in, in uh, ambulances and we can see early coagulation correction without the massive uh, logistical problems that it generates if you try to put blood on ambulances and blood products. So I wonder, you know, this is happening in Europe. I wonder if we'll see more of a movement toward concentrates uh, in the future. I wonder, you know, one thing I wonder about, I'm not a huge supporter, but there is a movement to start earlier interventions in the field, things like putting Reboas and doing ER thoracotomies, I'm not loving it, and, uh, but there does seem to be some, some movement toward that. So 
I think there will be a lot of change in the next years. I think we're really going to focus on hemorrhage control uh, and uh, hemostatic resuscitation, but that hemostatic resuscitation may move more toward concentrate and away from the blood products, uh, at least in the field. Yeah, that's so so interesting, and it's it's been particularly relevant, you know, to watch systems like Houston, for example, you know, under Dr. Holcomb and. Lots of the work that you've done put whole blood on helicopters and then ambulances, and we're starting to have that discussion in Canada. But it's, uh, you know, as you point out, there's a there's a lot of hurdles. It's a it's a hard sell uh, for for a lot of uh, our administrators for sure. You know, one of the papers I reviewed for the Journal of Trauma uh, not too too long ago was a comprehensive review, essentially, of the morbidity and the mortality process. For the special forces over the over the uh, entire duration of the of the desert war, um, and it was, you know, a fascinating thing to actually read in in black and white. I think a lot of us who have either been there on the Canadian side or or have never been there and, and just uh, learned through experiences when folks like yourself talk, um, understand to some extent the the closed loop capabilities of that system and it was it was remarkable to read in that in that paper you know you guys would identify issues you would study these issues you would provide an intervention study them again and then you would change the protocols and the policies and the the pathways and the algorithms with which you treated these soldiers that sort of closed loop um highly motivated maybe even uh hierarchy sort of structured uh environment seems to have incredible benefits. How do you translate that sort of high-speed nature of that entire process back to the civilian world in our trauma centers where we simply don't seem to have the capability to, you know, provide a lot of those um, uh, components within that, within that cycle of quality improvement that's so rapid? So, Chad, that's a great question, and it is something I'm trying to do here in Portland as well. I think we can do it. So just to uh, put a little fi- some finer points on what you're saying. So you're basically describing the algorithm for the joint trauma system, which is you, you, you take care of patients, you study the patients that you're taking care of, you create clinical practice guidelines, and then you study them and alter them. Um, that's something that, you know, I think level one trauma centers do in their, uh, in their own centers but we need to regionalize this. So one of the main ways that this was successful in the military was a Thursday video teleconference, which continues to this day. And what happens at a fixed time on Thursday, uh, across continents, people get on a video teleconference just like this, very feasible, and they present all the patients that were evacuated to launch stool for the last week. The presentation starts with the medics uh, in the dirt in Afghanistan. It goes to the forward surgical hospital, and then it follows the patient to the combat support hospital, back to Germany, and then back to continental United States, and sometimes even to the VA. And each individual or individuals that cared for the patient at each of these levels presents the patient. And then the presentation is correlated with the clinical practice guidelines and points are made, well, you, you, know, you, you know, the clinical practice guideline, you know, this patient had an eye injury, why didn't you put an eye shield on? And that's how people learn and that's how PI is done. And I don't think there's any reason in the modern era that we can't do that in the United States. Why can't we 
you know, for us, you know, we have a lot of rural centers, you do as well. Why couldn't the medics who pick up the patient in the rural center be on a video teleconference with the, uh, the level three or rural hospital who then presents their part of it? And the follow-up is given from the level one trauma center. Why can't we do that? And then why can't we create guidelines and uh, talk about efficiencies of care and do process improvement as we do this? I, I think that the model exists we're trying to recreate it in Portland. I think that everyone can do it. And you know, with this pandemic, one of the benefits is we've gotten really good at these Zoom conferences. And you, you know, Chad, for all I know, you're in uh, the north of Canada, in the middle of nowhere, all by yourself, with no one, you know, around you for hundreds of miles. And you could present a patient that you cared for there, and it, uh, the presentation then could go to a regional hospital and then back to Vancouver. Uh, there's no reason we can't do this, and I think we should. Uh, you're, you're speaking music to my my biased ears for for sure. You know, there's there's two caveats that I always like to frame exactly what you've you've said. In the first one is, you know, I think a lot of us have have sort of visited and, and done uh, visiting prof rounds in in uh, Australia, and it's remarkable to watch, you know, somebody in Brisbane at their trauma center help guide um, through essentially. Uh, uh, telecommunication, video, and audio resuscitations in the north of Australia in Darwin in real time. I mean, that that technology is not, not new. It's as we all know, it's extremely old, but it's certainly underutilized in the civilian world. The the other thing that fits exactly with what you're saying is, you know, when I was in Atlanta at Grady, we had monthly uh, morbidity and mortality rounds, and each of those groups were represented in person in that room. And I'm sure a lot of places do that. So. You know, you'd say, well, why is the scene time 19 minutes here in this gunshot? And the police chief would, would immediately thunder it and say, well, it's because we didn't have the scene controlled. And then you would sort of deal with those issues all the, all the way through it as you went for, as you point out, immediate quality improvement. I, I don't think we've leveraged that enough, certainly in, the, in this country, uh, on the civilian side at all. I, I'm curious how common it is across the U.S. because it, it seems to be low-hanging fruit, to your point, with you know, the, the recent uptake of, of all of this uh, teleconference technology, it would be so easy, eh? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it is common. I do know there are some systems that do it well. I think the Penn system uh, in Philadelphia and, uh, uh, you know, they've created a system of somewhere around 20 plus hospitals that are tightly organized to uh, do systematic review uh, in that system. Uh, but I'm not aware of a lot of other systems that have done this. So I think, you know, this is an opportunity and we really need to focus on it and, and do a much better job. Uh, I think it's particularly pertinent for a state like Oregon uh, and much of Canada where you have sort of a, you know, we have one big city uh, and two level one trauma centers in that city, but, you know, this is a massive state and patients can come from anywhere in the state. So and we need to you know, standardized care across, you know, vast distances. And the way to do this is through communication and presenting cases. Uh, one of the things that happened uh, in theater when I was the Joint Theater Trauma System director, the Secretary of Defense said, okay, we're going to have a one hour rule, a golden hour rule. And an injured patient needs to be in the hands of a surgeon within an hour. So one of, one of the things I did was I reviewed every single case where the patient wasn't in the hands of a surgeon within an hour. And it was about, you know, five, six or 7% of the cases. And it was almost always equipment failure, weather, 
or the tactical scenario. It was rarely, you know, failure to move the patient because of some inact, uh, some problem with care. It was a technical problem or logistical problem or a battle-related problem. We don't have those problems in the United States, but we do have problems with weather and we have other challenges. But, you know, I think that's another way to do this. Look at, you know, create a standard. And if the patients don't meet the standard, specifically review those patients as a system and come up with solutions. That, I think that's what we need to do better. And that would be a lesson we could learn from our military experience. Yeah, I like the word standard, and and I don't mean this as a as a fanboy, but I, I mean it in in all uh, honesty and and being genuine. I think you really do set the standard in the current era of of not only trauma care but also perspective and and trauma research. I'm curious what you tell your residents, your surgical trainees uh, in Portland with regards to advice as to how to be so engaged and so productive, and in particular. Um, be so successful academically and clinically over such a sustained period of time? Yeah, you know, uh, um, yeah, I think it's about uh, one, one, the words, one, a couple of words I really like are situational awareness. Um, I think as, you know, residents, and this is something I teach, residents, uh, interns, residents, early trainees, they're very focused on uh, the patient in front of them, and, and they should be. But as you gain experience, you start to be more aware of the system. And, uh, you know, okay, it's not just this one patient, but there's another patient on the way. The other trauma center is very busy. Uh, and, you know, they may go on diversion. The weather is bad. We're not going to be able to get patients from the coast today. We need another plan for that. Um, so I think I, uh, one of the things I teach interns and residents is very difficult because they do focus on the patient from them is to be circumspective. Uh, I think, I think an important thing to teach is, you know, very early on in your career, you need to start thinking about what type of, you know, surgeon are you going to be? Are you going to be a private practice person? Not really interested in research. Are you more interested in academics and systems? Uh, then you need to start thinking about time management because, even the early career uh, people coming out of fellowship, uh, you know, the tendency is to uh, really engross themselves in surgery. And what happens is you start engrossing yourself in surgery, then you start to have a family and research becomes sort of the last thing on the list and it doesn't happen. So if you want to be academic, if you want to do research, you, you, it really has to be a priority. Because for most people, it just becomes the last thing on the list that doesn't happen. The other thing I teach people is that it's it, um, the system that they work in, that the system they, they choose to work in, you know, as they look at jobs, they need to look at that very closely. Does the system uh, focus on research? Does it provide pr protected time? Are there mechanisms in place to assist you with getting IRB submitted, getting grants submitted? You can't walk into a place, be expected to work hard as a surgeon, have no infrastructure and be productive. So I teach people to look at those factors as they look at jobs. You know, if they're gonna go into private practice, go to a place where they, you know, they focus on being good surgeons, they're supportive, uh, they help you if you're in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. But if you wanna do research, go to a place that emphasizes it and has infrastructure to support it and will provide you 
with the time to do it. So those are, I think, some of the critical elements that that goes into educating people. So, you know, education needs to be not only about where to put the stitches and who to operate on, but it needs to be about how to take care of yourself, how to maintain your uh, your sanity, how to you know get enough sleep, make sure you're well fed, take care of your your colleagues, your your other residents and partners, take care of your family, have balance in your life. Uh, there's a lot to it that goes just beyond putting in the stitches. So you, you talked about your advice to, to your residents. If you could go back in time and, and give yourself advice, perhaps as, a, as an early attending, having gone through what you've gone through now, what would the advice be to yourself as, as an, maybe an early attending? You know, it's the, it's, it's the advice I give. Um, I think, you know, you know, at heart, we are all surgeons, you know, you know, we, we went through surgical residencies and we are surgeons. Uh, tackle the tough cases. You know, don't avoid anything. You know, you start once you start to avoid cases, uh, what happens is, you know, before you know it, you're afraid to do a hernia or an appy. Uh, so get embroiled, take on tough cases, use your partners. Uh, take advice from them and balance your life, you know, maintain some kind of balance in your life, take care of yourself, take care of your family, uh, develop balance and, and pick an environment to work in where you feel part of a family that is a very healthy environment, supportive, uh, will help you through those tough cases and help you achieve your career goals, regardless of what those are. So make sure you're, if you want to do research, make sure an environment that supports it, but, but do not shy away from the tough cases, take them on, get busy, get your hands working. Those, those first few years out of training play a big role on who you're going to be. And if you're not really, you know, embroiled in surgery, then it's possible that you'll shy away from it in the future and you'll lose your identity as a surgeon. Those are my, that, that's what I advise. I, I, I mentioned I was in the Army. Uh, the Army is a unique environment, particularly in, in uh, the mid-90s. I was able to do just about every kind of surgery there was. I mean, we did, you know, lobectomies and whipples and liver resections. And uh, so that's a great way to start a career because you're really not afraid of anything. And uh, it starts you on a, a path toward being a competent and confident surgeon. And I think that's critical for people in our profession. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.